Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth with each other, and with a divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. My name is Chris Foss Rothmeyer. I am a pastor in Portland, Oregon, and a middle school teacher. And I'm here at Holden this year talking about the history of racism. Last year, I podcasted a brief history of racism over the last 500 years, pointing out key events along the timeline leading up to the present day. I'll do the same this year, but I want to devote this podcast to a different way to look at history, not through my own perspective only, but also through the words of those who spoke out against racism and slavery over the last several hundred years. Acts of protest existed as soon as the Spanish and later English settlers began subjugating Native people, for Europeans first looked at Native Americans as potential slaves. But many Natives died and many resisted at efforts to enslave them, turning European eyes toward Africa. Race-based slavery did not exist at all at first, but it became the basis for establishing and maintaining a slave class in the 1600s. The first documented Africans were brought unwillingly to the English colonies in 1619 as indentured servants. We know of their discontent and mistreatment because we have written records of many protests starting from around that time. We know of a man named John Punch, who ran away from his master in 1640. We know of the Gloucester, Virginia Slave Revolt in 1663, of the all-black uprising in Virginia in 1687, of the Slave Rebellion in New York City in 1712, the Stono Slave Rebellion in Charleston, South Carolina, 1739, and many other acts of resistance. Though... These efforts failed to bring about freedom and liberty for Africans who were enslaved in the U.S. They nonetheless speak of the spirit of resistance that pervaded the colonies from the early days of race-based slavery. Let's listen to the voices of a few prominent figures along our timeline. Isabella Bomfree was born into slavery around 1797. At the age of 11, she was sold for $100 along with a flock of sheep. In 1826, she escaped to freedom with her infant daughter and thereafter devoted her life to free other slaves. Among those slaves was one of her own sons, whom she successfully defended in a U.S. court. Later, she, challenged, she, later, she changed her name to Sojourner Truth. In 1851, she delivered her famous Ain't I a Woman speech, which boldly criticized the societal belief that women were weaker than men and at the same time exposed the cruelty and inhumanity of slavery. In her words, ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. 
and ate I a woman. In 1818, Frederick Douglass was born into slavery in Maryland. In 1838, he too escaped slavery and became the leading voice in the abolitionist movement. He believed that the North had to win the Civil War in order to bring about the end of slavery, and he continued to fight for full citizenship and voting rights for freed slaves after the war. The 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitutional eventually granted these rights to all people, and Douglas' voice was a prominent one in their inclusion in the law of the land. Here are Douglas' words in the same month that the Civil War ended. It may be asked, why do you want the vote? Some men have got along very well without it. Women have not this right. Shall we justify one wrong by another? Continues Douglas. Shall we at this moment justify the deprivation of the Negro of the right to vote because someone else is also deprived of that privilege? I hold that women, as well as men, have the right to vote. Truth and Douglas had well-defined goals. To gain freedom and rights for slaves, their struggle was hard-fought and it ultimately had some tangible results. But in a way, the greater struggle came after slaves became legally free. Historian Rayford Logan calls this period after Reconstruction up to the 20th century the nadir of American race relations. It was marked by a loss of many of the rights that African Americans received during Reconstructions, as well as lynchings, segregation, legal racial discrimination, and unabashed expressions of white supremacy. Logan identified the year 1901 as the year when Negro status in American society reached an all-time low. Although historian James Lowen and others placed the date more deeply into the 20th century. Whenever the, whatever the exact year, African Americans faced great societal obstacles in their success in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It should be noted that the term nadir refers specifically to African-American experience, but anti-Chinese sentiment was also at an all-time low. The passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which prohibited the immigration of all Chinese laborers into the U.S., is a case in point. Still, in this nadir era, the need for African-Americans to find a way forward was on many people's minds. Decades after slaves were released from chattel slavery, the, most, the kind of slavery most people think when they hear the word slavery, many were steeped in debt slavery, a system in which African-American farmers and sharecroppers were perpetually, indebted, in, were perpetually indebted to white landowners. In effect, it was extremely difficult for former slaves to lift themselves up in a society that pushed them down economically, politically, and socially. Enter two prominent African-American figures, each prescribing a way forward for former slaves, and the descendants of slaves, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, recognized and experienced the struggles that black men and women experienced in the late 1800s, but they had different ideas about how to bring about positive change. Washington was born a slave on a Virginia plantation in 1856. By the turn of the 20th century, however, he was the most well-known man in the U.S. and probably the world, he was nine years old when the war ended, and he went to work immediately in salt factories and coal mines during the day and to school at night. In 1881, he was sent to help organize the Tuskegee Institute, turning it into the, the respected black university that it remains today. 
1895 at the Atlanta Expo, he gave a controversial speech that addressed racial progress and made his name a household one. The speech, known as the Atlantic Compromise, is considered one of the most important speeches in American history. It conveyed the message that black people should concern themselves with working hard to gain economic advantage and to accommodate to white culture. In his own words, To those of my race who depend on bettering the condition in a foreign land, I would say, make friends in every manly way of the people of all races by whom we are surrounded. It is at the bottom of life we must begin and not at the top. Nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities. In short, he said that black people should work hard, be congenial, and accept their unequal place in society. White society loved Washington and made him the chief spokesman for all black people because he said exactly what they wanted to hear. Just eight months after Washington's speech, it must be noted, the Supreme Court issued its landmark Plessy v. Ferguson decision, which upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation. Washington felt that races would naturally separate, so that legal separation was unnecessary. The Supreme Court decision, however, went one step further, though, by saying that public facilities should be separate but also equal. However, in the country, as the country moved into a period we now call the Jim Crow era, those facilities became anything but equal. One can imagine how many politicians loved twisting quotes by Washington to their advantage as they institutionalized a system of unequal treatment for people of color that lasted for almost 60 years. Here, however, is Washington, in his own words, published posthumously. The Negro objects to being segregated because it usually means that he will receive inferior accommodations in return of the taxes he pays. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois was one among many black activists who criticized Washington harshly. In 1895, Du Bois was the first African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard University, and he went to one he went on to found an organization that later merged with the NAACP. In his well-known book, The Souls of Black Folk, he levels this criticism. Mr. Washington distinctly asks that black people give up, at least for the present, three things. First, political power. Second, insistence on civil rights. Third, higher education of Negro youth. And concentrate all their energies on industrial education, the accumulation of wealth, and the conciliation of the South. In essence, he said, Washington was willing to compromise on political rights in order to gain economic rights. Du Bois was not. Negroes must insist continually, in season and out of season, that voting is necessary to modern manhood, that color discrimination is barbarism, and that black boys need education as well as white boys. Do you want me to continue? It's like a 10... Yeah, totally. No, I mean, it can go... Okay, it's just a recommended. Okay, all right. You're doing great. Yeah, have a drink of water. All right. These two. This, this is sorry. This is going to be dense. I mean, you know, having it written out like this, you <laughs> covering a lot of history. Yeah, oh, man. All right, all right. These two perspectives both reflected and influenced early 20th century strategies for gaining full citizenship, full citizenship rights for all people of color. Those in favor of an approach that favors self-improvement through individual economic gain, the perpetual theme of late 19th century author Horatio Alger, gravitate toward Booker T. Washington. 
those in favor of an approach that focuses on political empowerment and the demand for civil rights gains in society find inspiration in W.E.B. Du Bois. Echoes of these two perspectives can still be heard today, particularly in the mindsets of our two-party political system, making Washington and Du Bois very relevant still. We continue to argue over whose method provides the best way forward, partly because we remain locked in an either-or racial worldview. 100 years later, racial distinctions are not quite as clearly defined as they were during Du Bois and Washington's time, but they still exist. Washington and Du Bois both asked, how can African Americans rise within a culture where European Americans felt very secure in their majority status and political power? But demographics have greatly shifted in the U.S. since 1900. The U.S. Census Bureau has defined white in many ways over the last 228 years, but it currently defines white people as those having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. Currently, these whites make up about 77% of the population of the U.S. as of 2013. The population of the country has more than quadrupled since Washington and Du Bois engaged in debate from 76 million in 1900 to 330 million today. The non-Hispanic white population of the U.S. is expected to fall below 50% by 2045 as immigrants and their U.S.-born descendants are expected to provide most of the U.S. population gains in the decades ahead. For now, Washington and Du Bois question, how can African Americans rise? is still relevant because we still judge people by the content of their character, as well as the color of their skin. And in the arenas of political involvement, incarceration rates, quality of schools in places where black people tend to live, frequency of discipline in public schools, and longevity, African Americans come up shorter than almost every other category on the U.S. Census, Native Americans being the notable exception. But as demographics in the U.S. change, their, their question will be replaced by new questions in the coming century. Who are people of color? How will we know when they have gained political power, as they and we become increasingly irrelevant terms? Will some feel threatened by these changes and react violently and irrationally? Probably. Or can we navigate peacefully into a new way of understanding ourselves racially? How long will some white U.S. lawmakers retain archaic racial dichotomies and seek to keep other white Middle Easterners and white Northern Africans out? How will the definition of whiteness change? Will identification with whiteness continue to benefit certain people 50 years from now? Will white people 100 years from now look like white people today? It has been said that part of white privilege means not having to think about being white. Well, that at least seems destined to change. Some people ask if class is what we should be talking about rather than race. And I think of race as that undergirding, always ever-present issue that exists. There are obviously class differences. There are ways that people discriminate sexually. There are people that discriminate in terms of... Uh, religion and mm -hmm. culture, all these things. And I would say probably there are very few issues that are only racial, but race has is pervasive. It is part of all that we experience in this mm -hmm. culture, whether you're a person of color or a so-called white person in this culture. It is part of the conversation in 
everything that we do. So it's still relevant to talk about race. And it's relevant to talk about class also. But my, my interest, and I believe uh, everybody's interest, is to have a conversation about race. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.